Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Some months back with a constitution of rights, uh, not rights in the sense of personal privileges, but rights in a moral sense, as in right and wrong, the Ten Commandments. Having only one God before us is right. Uh, Not coveting or killing or lying is right. Uh, Being faithful to a man or a woman for a lifetime in marriage is right. These are the rights of a godly culture as proposed by the Ten Commandments. But having said that about constitutional rights, We now turn our attention this morning in our series, as Dan encouraged us to do in being honest about ourselves, to a deep, what I call personal wrong. What's wrong with us as we reflect on these rights? What's wrong with me? Uh, What's wrong with you? Why is it that just knowing the right thing to do is not good enough? Why is it that Israel received these Ten Commandments off a great mountain with smoke and fire and bowed low in adoration and fear and took those Ten Commandments and then set off in their journey and just 12 chapters later were found shamelessly worshiping a golden calf with no thought of God? Where is the disconnect here? Why is it that we know what's right and then lie and cheat and steal and lust, and commit immorality, and those kind of things, even while our conscience begs to differ. What facilitates such a moral disconnect between constitution on the one hand and conduct on the other? You know, somewhere along the line, there is a major power failure, and the fault, dear Brutus, lies not in the stars, but in ourselves. It's true the Ten Commandments teach us the truth about life. But this morning, I want for us to take a moment, and it's a hard moment, and examine the truth about ourselves. And what is that truth? Well, in the late 1970s, when I was in graduate school at Lewis and Clark College, I was working on a master's in counseling psychology. And I was introduced to a number of differing psychoanalytical understandings about human behavior. Many of those particular philosophies were built upon a premise that everyone just assumed, and that was the basic goodness of mankind. Here's one of the textbooks that I studied. I pulled it out of my library. It shows a a young girl, probably five or six. She has no clothes on. There's kind of a shadowy figure, and she's standing on a beach with her arms outstretched. She's totally uninhibited. She's totally free. It's kind of symbolic of the 70s, isn't it? And the title of the book is Born to Win. Now, it deals with transactional analysis, or TA. You know, remember the adult, parent, child, and all that kind of thing that you would learn in graduate school, and we learned that. But it was all built upon a very nervy, almost arrogant presupposition. Who says that we are born to win? And since we now have, some 30 years later, all... 30 years later, a a real plethora of psychological facilitators helping us with self-understanding and self-awareness and self-fulfillment and self-empowerment. With all that we have, now that we're born to win, 
Why as a culture are we losing? It's a good question, isn't it? Why is it that 70% of the American public thinks we're off track? Why is it that in the 30 years since Born to Win was written, Violent crime is up 560%, and illegitimate births are up 400%. In a few years, 40% of all the births in America are going to be illegitimate. Why is teenage suicide, if we're born to win, up 200%? And why is it that SAT scores, on average, since that time, are down 75 points? Why is it that kids from other countries who come here to study, when they begin to get lazy and loose and crazy in their lifestyles are chided by their immigrant friends. You know, you're becoming lazy. You're becoming American. Novelist John Updike said it this way. He says, in America, the fact that we still live well cannot ease the pain of feeling that we can no longer live nobly. Why are we losing when we were born to win? Maybe, just maybe we don't know the real truth about ourselves. Maybe we can't handle that truth, and so we use false covers not to face the hard reality of our life. You know, today in America, we are grappling for answers, and most of the ones being offered on why we're losing out on life are, in my opinion, just merely half-truths. Now, they, there's truth to them, and I want you to know that before I move through them. There's truth to them, but they tend to allow us to excuse dealing with the more fundamental truths of our human nature. Let me mention five of them real briefly. First of all, there are some who say that we're losing out because of poor self-esteem. You know the self-esteem credo that goes, there are no bad people, only people who feel bad about themselves. People who are winners are people who think good about themselves. And so whether it be in the inner cities or in different therapy groups, there's the mantra that everybody chants, I am a somebody. I am a somebody. And if we say it enough, we'll feel good and then we'll win. Even uh, that has creeped into the church. You know, one of the great TV evangelists, Robert Shuler, wrote a book. It didn't sell very well, thank goodness, several years ago called The Second Reformation. <laughs> it was one of his failures. But in that, he proposed that we redefine sin and have a reformation and not call sin, sin, but call sin poor self-esteem. Here's what he said. Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another, or another human being of his or her self-esteem. Is that right? Positive self-esteem in America is at record levels. Do you know that? In 1940, they took a survey, and the survey asked the question, or just made the statement, I am important somebody. How do you react to that? 11% of the women, 20% of the men agreed with the statement, I am a somebody in 1940. In 1995, 66% of the women in America and 62% of the men say, I agree. I am a somebody. And personally, I'm glad that people are feeling better about themselves. It's good to know you're feeling okay, but are we living better? Has it helped us in marriage, in drug addiction, in the crime rate, in spousal abuse, in racism, and on and on? Has it that we're feeling better? Students from six different nations were asked to respond yes or no to, the question, to this question after they had taken a math test, an international math test. Or excuse me, I keep saying question, statement. The statement was, I am good at mathematics. And then they took this test. American students scored last among the six nations who took the math test, but they scored first in the number 
of students who felt that they were good at math. They felt real good about themselves. The Korean students, on the other hand, scored last in self-esteem. Only 25% answered the question, yes, to I am good at math, although they scored first in the exam. Feeling good is not necessarily doing better or living better. There's a deeper issue. Secondly, there are some who say we're losing out because others are to blame. It's always someone else. It's always something else that's my problem. Charles Sykes wrote the book, A Nation of Victims. And in it he said, the new national anthem should be called The Wine. <laughs> blame it on somebody else. Blame it on something else. It's always somewhere else, but it's not me. That's why we watched on TV one night and saw Damian Williams and Henry Rotson pull out Reginald Denny from the truck during the L.A. riots and beat him up. And then as he lay on the, the ground, came and smashed his skull in with a brick and then did a victory dance over him. Remember that? We watched in horror with that. Those two men were later acquitted. And the reason they were acquitted, even though a nationwide audience watched it, was that the lawyers convinced the jury that these men could not be held accountable. They were not to blame. It was the mob atmosphere that was to blame. And these two men were simply swept away by it and therefore could not be convicted of it. On and on, things like that go. We see that happening more and more in our society today. And we're losing but the reason we're losing is because my parents are to blame, or my job is to blame, or the stress is to blame, or the music I listen to is to blame, or the friends I run around with are to blame. Everybody and everything but me. Is that true? It's a half-truth, but it's not really all true. Because what blame does is allow for me to cover a deeper issue. It becomes denial for a more fundamental reality about human nature. Thirdly, there are some who say we're losing because of a lack of education. I've always liked education. I'm a strong proponent of education. But somewhere along the line came the theory that if we educate people enough, they will act responsibly. Now, most of us sat in a crib 20, 30, some 50 years ago and heard our parents tell us to eat our vegetables, right? Do you? Do you eat well? See, a lot of us are overeducated in eating, but we still don't eat right. Some of us have been told that exercise is good for our health. There's some who do, but there are others of us that have a Nordic track and a Stairmaster in our garage, and we wear all the athletic gear. We are totally athleticized except for one problem. We don't exercise. <laughs> They're telling us it's killing us, and we know it, and we've heard it. We just don't do it. Those who are in the highest risk groups of all time who risk their life with unprotected sex. And they've been told to wear the condom. But when they do the surveys, they don't. Any child expert will tell you that the best environment for the children that we love, that we say we love, the most nurturing environment, the most exciting and creative an electric environment for a young child in the early years is to have a parent at home with them full-time, focused on them, nurturing them, loving them, giving them priority. And yet by the year 2000, 90% of American children under four will be home alone or in daycare. We know better. We're educated better. But we don't live better. There's a deeper problem. 
Fourth, some say we're losing out because government isn't doing enough. We say that good government is essential. We need them. But government at its best is simply a band-aid when it comes to issues of morality and issues of the heart. Government can create quotas, but it can't end the racism in me. Government can give me a V-chip for my television set, but it can't stop the impurity of my life. Secretary of Education and drugs, former drug czar Bill Bennett said it this way, a public servant, he said this, the last quarter century has taught politicians a hard and humbling lesson. There are intrinsic limits to what the state can do, particularly when it comes to imparting virtue and forging character. And we know it, don't we? We feel it and we see it. Long ago, Samuel Johnson expressed it this way. He said, how small of all that human hearts endure that part which laws and government can cause or cure. Government is a half-truth to a more fundamental problem. Finally, some say we're losing because we've got defective genes and flawed brains, right? Here's the cry. Listen to it. I was born that way. And we have the scientific research now to back it up. Now, for some to say, I was born that way, is a call for exoneration of behavior. For others, using the exact same premise, it's a call for help. For one, it's to be rescued. For another, it's to become a legal right. But I want you to know, whichever way you turn, when we say, I was born that way, we come very close to what theologians have been saying for centuries. You see, in 400 A.D., Augustine would have said, you were born that way. In the Middle Ages, John Calvin and Martin Luther would have said, yeah, you were born that way. In the American revivals, John and Charles Wesley would have said, yeah, you were born that way. Billy Graham will say it today. You were born that way. Unfortunately, when people say today, I was born that way, they don't really lean the direction of what Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and on and on said. They lean more to what my friend Rich Campbell wrote. He says, the news arrived via the airwaves just as I was devouring my second helping of spaghetti. Fighting back a smile, NBC's Tom Brokaw made the announcement that millions of Americans, like myself, have been waiting years to hear. The details were startling. Scientists at Rockefeller University in New York had discovered a fat gene. What joy those two words released in my soul. As one who struggles with his weight, I immediately put down my fork and listened. What rapturous delight I watched as Dr. Jeffrey Friedman explained his discovery. For eight years, Dr. Friedman, who gets my vote for the Nobel Prize, <laughs> and his team studied some very fat mice. In the laboratory, these portly rodents ate everything inside and eventually weighed three times as much as normal mice. Dr. Friedman and his team concluded that the difference between the Arnold Schwarzenegger mice and the Roseanne Arnold mice was a single gene. <laughs> the scientists believe that this same defective gene has a counterpart in the human population. And since 60 million Americans are obese, the Rockefeller study has given new hope to people like myself whose wardrobes consist of sweatpants and tight-fitting t-shirts. <laughs> of course, I've never been tested to whether I have the fat gene but I know I do. <laughs> My experience confirms its presence. For example, when I eat the buffet at Shoney's, my entire DNA strand quivers in ecstasy. 
on top of this, I never once heard my brain say, it's time to stop. <laughs> In my case, a test for the fat gene would be a complete waste of time because some truths are self-evident. <laughs> and you were probably curious as to whether or not I exercise. I don't. The fat gene is responsible for this as well. <laughs> now science would just find a gene for TV addiction. Now there's some truth on both sides of that humorous discussion. But half-truths like this allow us to escape the deeper truth about ourselves. Did you hear that? The deeper one. It keeps us from any serious discussion, especially serious spiritual discussion about why we are the way we are and why we struggle the way we do. But what if, what if our real problem, our most fundamental problem, was spiritual? What if that was all of society's struggle? That would mean my effort, anything other, any other effort than a spiritual solution, would it best be superficial or doomed from the start? But you don't hear language like I'm about to speak this morning. Bill Bennett said recently, there is a disturbing reluctance in our time to talk seriously about spiritual matters. There is an aversion to spiritual language by the political and intellectual elite classes. And I want to tell you, this morning, I want to talk hard about the truth about ourselves. And in language that you don't hear often in the church today, because in the church we want people to feel good about themselves. We want them to be encouraged and lifted up. And certainly, I would like to be part of that at a point. But there comes a point where you can't understand the broader understandings of life or what we struggle with unless you face some hard realities, some fundamental realities that are behind everything in life, social, spiritual, and practical. So it's uncomfortable to talk about and disturbing to contemplate these issues I'm about to address. But it alone provides the context for everything that the Bible proclaims. It is the doctrine that causes all the other doctrines to make sense. And for us who understand this doctrine, it makes all the other doctrines make passionate sense. It gives them energy. And it alone provides the reason why we even celebrate Christmas. It gives a context for why we should say joy to the world when we see a picture of the Savior entering because the word Savior only makes sense in light of this doctrine, it is the truth behind all of life's troubles. And what is it? It is that we are all, listen, cursed with a condition theologians call total depravity. It's like the case of Madre Hill, the star running back for Arkansas. You know, when Madre was first hurt in the Florida game, we thought it's just a sprain. <laughs> All it needs is taping. Then as they did a little work on him and his doctors used their scientific research, they found out, no, it's more than that. It's cartilage. His knee needs to be scoped. But then when the scope got in there and looked around, they found out it was the absolute worst case of all. It's what every athlete fears to hear. The knee is totaled. It's a ligament tear. And no one has ever come back from the damage called an ACL tear. Not better, not faster, not stronger. The condition is as bad as it can get. 
Society today desperately wants man to believe with these half-truths that his problem can be taped, that his problem can be scoped, that science somehow can deliver him from it. But you know what? Our problem is as bad as it gets. It's our nature. It's spiritual. See, the Bible says man is a fallen creature, and in that fall his whole eternal nature has been torn, totaled, wrecked. That's what the Scripture says. Jeremiah 79 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who's he talking about? He's talking about me. That's hard to grasp. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 9, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. He was talking of all men and women. Do you think of yourself that way? Have you contemplated your nature that deep? Perhaps, just perhaps, that is why for some there is no passion for Christ. Perhaps it's without that context that there is no need to read the Bible or go to church or to fall down on my knees and cry out for mercy because I'll just tape it up and go back out and play. And we do with about the same effectiveness as Madre Hill if you watch the game. There's problems there. And these half-truths will not solve them because the injury is deep. When mankind fell in Adam, the whole human race, we forget this, the whole human race was cursed by God. Martin Lloyd-Jones summed it up this way in his book, The Plight of Man. He said, man has fallen away from God and as a result his whole nature has become perverted. Man's whole bias is away from God. By nature, he feels that God is opposed to him. And you see that, don't you? When you talk to your friends, you bring up God and everybody just kind of draws back, especially if you talk seriously about it. People draw back. God is not something you want to really talk about. It's, it's not user-friendly. And why? Because it strikes a chord deep in our nature that says, I'm opposed to that. He objects to the demands God makes on him. Furthermore, man likes and covets the things which God prohibits and dislikes the things and the kind of life God calls him to. This is man. This is the heart of man. This is my heart. Some have dismissed this curse, this curse that theologians call total depravity, by assuming that really what it means is that people then will be, if they're really totally depraved, totally perverse, as bad as they can possibly be. And they look around and their friends aren't like that. Their neighbor's nice. He helps. He doesn't, he doesn't believe in anything, but he's not a bad guy. And so they say, that thing that Robert was talking about, that must be an error. Total depravity does not mean one is as evil in his actions as he can possibly be. When theologians speak of totally, total depravity, they just simply mean that man as a human race is as bad off <laughs> as he can possibly be. We're cursed. And with that curse, life will not work no matter how hard we try or how much scope we have. And death will have no answers to us. We're cursed. From the pages of Scripture, let me give you three definitions. They go together for what theologians mean by total depravity. First, it means this. It means I am separated from God and under His judgment. I came into the world that way. Not a friend of God, an enemy of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we came into the world, listen to this, this is an incredible statement, excluded 
from the life of God. Did you know that? Everyone comes into the world that way. In Romans 5, Paul says that death came into the world through one man and condemnation through that death and it spread to all men. Every one of us. So I come into this world not just a cute little baby with big cheeks. I come into the world alienated from God. And without some kind of profound something in my life, at some point, I will die alienated from God. And that's my problem. Secondly, depravity means I've inherited a corrupt nature that no human agency can cure. King, King David said it this way in Psalm 51.5. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born this way. That's what he said. I was born this way. With sin, kind of my friend, not my enemy, with a propensity to sin, with a corrupted nature. And people in past generations understood that distance between them and a holy and just and perfect God. If they didn't see it in their birth, they could surely see it later in their life. And rather than say, I was born this way, you need to exonerate me for that, they would fall down on their knees and cry out for not exoneration, but for salvation. I need you, God. The Westminster Confession puts it this way, Our first parents fell and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, this same corrupt nature was conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Like kind beget like kind. This corrupt nature we have inherited cannot be eradicated by education, by the way. <laughs> People think it can. They can just get them educated enough. But you know what education does to a depraved human being? It makes him sophisticated in his evil. It makes him a master manipulator. It allows him to take a whole country and twist it in such a way that it can go out and create the most barbarous acts on mankind as its leader that's what education does to a depraved human being. It can't be eradicated by education. It can't be eradicated by a better environment or self-understanding or all the counseling money can buy or simply willpower. I will not do it. But like Paul says, that which I say I won't do, I do. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? I'm cursed with a corrupt nature. Thirdly, depravity means this. My corrupt nature left unaddressed will inevitably corrupt my life. It'll, it'll inevitably do that. And the lives of others with sins. And when I say sins, I just simply mean those everyday acts that we almost see as normal. Acts of selfishness and greed and pride and anger and hatred and impurity and immorality and so on and so on. That in time, left unchecked and unaddressed, will spoil my life will ruin my dreams and the dreams of others attached to me, will hurt the very people I love the most and leave me at some point in my life feeling empty, some of us feeling desperately empty with a load of guilt on our shoulders and not knowing what to do about it. Other than say, I was born that way or I need to feel better about myself. 
or somebody is responsible for this. That's the hard truth of man. This is the hidden reality behind every life cut off from God and corrupted by sin. I want you to turn to Romans 3 because Paul says all of this very powerfully in Romans 3. And as you turn there, I want you to watch how as he begins to speak of this condition, it moves from who we are to what we do. Romans chapter 3, he's summarizing that all the world is guilty before God. The pagan, the moral man, and he's just finished up on the religious man. And then he comes to verse 10 and he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. Useless how? For kingdom purposes, in relationship with God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then notice how that begins to surface in actions. Our throat becomes an open grave. Our tongues, we deceive people. We don't tell them the truth. We poison other people with gossip, with the ass that's under our lips. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, especially when life doesn't work out our way. Our feet are swift to shed blood and hurt others. Our paths become paths of destruction and misery, and we don't even know where to find anymore the path of peace. You know the common thread that runs behind events as big as Bosnia to events as small as your home? It's the common thread that at times we're alienated from God. Maybe for some of us, completely cut off from the life of God. And we're battling an enemy, a nature that is deep within us. That's our problem. Let me give you four quick implications of what this means. Now let me tell you, next week we're going to talk about the good news. I get the opportunity to finish this. Today, I want us to feel the terror. Because without the terror, there is no passion for Christ. Without a sense of deliverance. But here are the implications of that kind of nature. First, total depravity means we're all dysfunctional by nature. We all need a wonderful counselor. We just need to know who he is. We all need a great physician. We just need to know where his office is to be found. We all need a healer. We just need to know what kind of healer. We all need that because we're dysfunctional by nature. Secondly, total depravity means most of our real problems. Most of our real problems come from within here. Here. Not out there. You take any relationship, any problem with your boss, anything, and I guarantee if you sit down with a bunch of objective people, they'll begin to point out your mistakes. I can blame all I want, but the hidden truth, the real truth, the hard truth is the trouble most of the time is due to me. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 15 these words, and He said it kind of exasperated if you look up the context, but He said, do you still lack understanding? Then He turned to His disciples and He says, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but the things that proceed out of his heart, those defile a life. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. That's where life gets defiled. Thirdly, total depravity requires, as you can already guess, a spiritual solution. Only God, now listen to this, only God, and this is what's not on the sign, in mercy can give. It's His mercy. None of the previous generations thought they deserved it. 
They didn't think it was their political or legal standing to have it. They recognized how far they were from it, and only God in mercy could help. Only He could take a spiritually corrupt nature and make it new. Only He could make the sentence of death go away so that the fear we could feel, or the fear we were feeling, even deep subconsciously, that drew us away from the spirit, from spiritual things, could be replaced by a passion to have them. Only God can give the power and grace necessary to bend a life that's bent towards corruption away from that corruption, its natural corruptions, to a desire for better things. Only God can do that. That's why previous generations, far from crying out for exoneration or pity, fell to their knees and said to God, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy. I need you. I can't make it without you. I understand the depth of my problem. Then fourthly, which goes along with just what I just said, admitting my total depravity is the essential first step to finding a real, did you hear that? Real relationship with God. Not a religion, not church attendance. When I really understand i got a problem, I want a real relationship with God. Only when we recognize our true condition, only when we recognize that, does the word Savior and salvation take on any real color. That's why in Jesus' first sermon, the very first sermon He preached at the Sermon on the Mount, His very first point to His very first sermon, do you remember it? Was this, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who come, came to the understanding that I got nothing. I'm alienated from God. I can't make it happen. I can't work it up. I'm lost. I don't deserve anything. Blessed are them who are impoverished in their spirit, who recognize their impoverishment, because then he goes on and says, for theirs is then the kingdom of heaven. See, there's hope on the other side, but it first takes an admission of the real problem. In 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. And the black box that they often found was found, and what was recovered revealed that several minutes before the impact of that plane, a shrill computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning signal told the crew in that cockpit over and over again, pull up, pull up, pull up. But the pilot, for whatever reason, thought that the system was malfunctioning. And so he snapped, these were the last words in the black box, he snapped, shut up, gringo, and turned it off. And in the moments that followed, the plane plowed into a mountainside, killing all hundred people aboard. This morning, through this book, I am presenting God's automatic warning signal that has been saying to generation after generation since the beginning of time that the course that we are on on this planet is terminal, that our nature is contemptible, and that our landing without a solution will be horrible, a Christless eternity. But there is a better way. And that better way is found in the pull-up of Jesus Christ. This morning, I'm concluding with that. Next week, we'll take the other side. But I want us, in the moments that follow, 
to celebrate not communion from the side of just that we're taking it and thinking about, gosh, Lord, we, we, we have you. But I want you to think of it in terms of mercy. He has mercy on us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the Word of God is the only real place that we can go to find the truth about ourselves. But thank you that only when we understand that it's not a sprain and it's not cartilage, it's total. Only when we understand that can then we go on and not only find the salvation we need, but that we can appreciate it at its fullest depths. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.